0: All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students it's free to become a student member for more information regarding MIPS student membership please visit qr.mips.com.au our next guest for season two is the ENT head and neck surgeon passionate indigenous health advocate and australia's first aboriginal surgeon associate professor kelvin kong professor kong can't welcome. stop me there
1: professor now <laughs> Kelvin welcome to the show. Thank you very much a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm quite excited to be here and I guess for the conversation as I said to you is that we will um, use a term of first nation rather than aboriginal just because as I represent the College of Surgeons we're bi-national Um, and so it's quite nice to be inclusive of our Maori people as well.
0: Great thanks very much for that. For those of our listeners who might not know you Kelvin would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a Warramai man, so I'm brought up in north of uh, Newcastle, which is about uh, 250 kilometres north of Sydney, for those who don't know. Um, Warramai country is probably the most beautiful part of Australia. Um, obviously, very biased in that opinion. Uh, we have a gorgeous coastline to say to that I'm a saltwater creature. Um, and as such, um, uh, pay and acknowledge um, that I'm on the cooler Nation today and uh, want to acknowledge the country that we're on today. Um, I grew up in a, with a single mother um, for the majority of my life with my two sisters and I uh, was really privileged and lucky to be afforded the opportunities that I have been afforded um, in progressing through medicine and more excitingly um, being able to be a surgeon and have a lot of fun in my work every day. Um, I do a lot of paediatric work, I do a lot of outreach work and more so in my life these days a lot more research and policy development which has been quite exciting for us.
0: There's a lot to unpack there. We're really excited to um, have a bit of a chat, learn more about the, the many things that you do. Firstly, can you just take us through your day so far? We're, we're very lucky to have you down here in Melbourne. Uh, as you mentioned, you're from Newcastle, but you're here on a
1: conference at the moment, I believe. How nice to have face-to-face contact at a conference. So This is uh, the first conference I've been to since uh, covid and it is a hybrid conference with the uh, Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. And this is our annual scientific meeting, which was meant to be in Perth, but because of COVID, it was all changed. So um, a lot of the presenters and local faculty have actually attended. But uh, there was, I think, two and a half thousand people registered online for the meeting um, and dialling in. And quite funnily, I've got friends over here who are staying in their hotel and enjoying and just watching the webinars rather than coming down, which has been quite a unique event. Um, and the meeting obviously is very exciting for us because we have such a a strong college in Indigenous health and there's a big program for me today um, convening the Indigenous health section which has been fabulous. So um, really nice to come at the end of a hyphen that day to be able to talk to you about some of the stuff today.
0: Absolutely, it's great to have you and uh, I hope we don't, you mentioned you've been giving a few speeches today, so I hope we don't wear out your voice too I much. I apologise
1: to our listeners, I'm a bit craggy because I've been talking all day. Um, I'm very pleased to say that I'm vaccinated and I've got a good bottle of hydration happening here too, but I feel fantastic, thank you for asking. Kelvin,
0: what are you listening to or reading at the moment? Is there anything you'd recommend to our listeners?
1: Um, I have just re- I'm just. i reading a couple of different books at the moment, but the one I really enjoyed recently was uh, uh, The Happiest Man. Um, which is a, a book about one of our um, nursing home um, retires who survived um, the Holocaust. And it was a, a beautiful story um, on how he survived and um, how he um, got out of the country. And I think the resilience of um, the character of, uh, of him and the humble nature in which he approached it is just so engaging. And um, um, for me, I enjoy reading biographies. Um, And so reading different people's stories and adversities and how they triumph that is so applicable to our general life. Um, But also how um, lucky we are and how fortunate we are in this country Um, is never uh, underestimated in what we're doing. Um, Music-wise, so much cool stuff at the moment. Baker Boy I'm really enjoying at the moment uh, in theatres and also in the car uh, and also podcasts, of course.
0: Who gets the music choice in your theatre normally?
1: um it depends on the theater i I operate both publicly and privately and depending on the mix i generally let my nurses because they control theaters quite a lot um and they generally have the rule of my computer which has a very eclectic collection but because it's on my computer i'm really happy with whatever style they come with it changes every day which is nice because it's not so boring then that's good
0: yes exactly good to have some variety So Kelvin, we've got you onto this podcast because you're a surgeon and we're very interested in surgery here. However, if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could try, what would it be and why?
1: Um, Oh, that's a really hard one. I think chefing, Um, I love cooking. Um, I love, uh, I have three young children who are starting to explore flour and eggs and mess. And uh, one of the joys we do is pancakes on a Saturday morning. And um, I am by no means, a, I should rephrase, I would not look at chefing but cooking because I'm nowhere near that kind of quality. But I really enjoy that and it's, it's, uh, it's nice to be able to um, uh, move away from medicine and just immerse yourself in something different and I, I really enjoy cooking.
0: So Kelvin, today uh, in an effort to get to know the doctor and the surgeon that, that you are, I'd love to go back to the start and find out a bit more about your background Tell us a bit about growing up and your early years.
1: Mm. Hard growing up in the early years. I think one of the fascinations in how I got into medicine was um, growing up in in my family, um, was a big family. And so my mother's from a family of 12. Um, She was the eldest and they all had children. And so all of my cousins were always around and would always come to my house because my mum was a nurse. Um, If I digress a second, um, her, background was harder and a lot more challenging than mine as was my nan's and one of the things we forget when we're in the privilege that we have is that um, they didn't grow up with the kind of things that we had access to. So when my mother was born, when my nan was born, they were born in a country where they weren't even recognised as citizens of their own country and that was prior to 1967. And one of the devastating things about that is that that meant that they had a lot of uh, common rights stripped from them where my mother and Nan wouldn't be able to go down the street without permission, that so they couldn't go to the movie theaters without um, the lights going down. If you were in town after dark, you'd picked up and be arrested, that you were constantly harassed, that you only had to go to the local swimming pool, a public swimming pool, because you're Aboriginal and they didn't want brown skin in contaminating the water. These kind of things that you talk about now, you think how ludicrous that actually is, but that was the reality of their life. And when we talk about these kind of concepts, we think that this is in the dark old ages, but this is very relevant history. And probably for most of our listeners on this podcast before their time, but in my history, certainly a lot of my colleagues don't understand that. And particularly for the broader fellowship of our specialty colleges um, grew up in an era and worked in an era where this was existent. And so fast forward a few years where um, after much discrimination, racism and hard work, um, mum managed to get through nursing, becoming one of our early pioneers in, as an Aboriginal nurse. And so a lot of the family come to our house to um, get stitches removed, to ask about immunisations, to ask about general health advice, to ask about all kind of ailments that um, we were excited by. My sisters, they're twins, they're older than me, we would fight over who would help Mum and look after it, take the scissors out, get the packs together, etc., etc. et cetera. And it was a real buzz in our house and it was so much fun. It brings a smile to my face thinking about it um, because we had a lot of fun doing this kind of um, work with mum. But it wasn't until you got to high school that you had that mature reflection to say, well, why are they coming to our house? There's a polyclinic up the road. There are GPs in town. There are community nurses around why is the broader community coming to our house to seek mum and also as a single mum at that time uh, a little jealous of our family taking mum's time when there was us kids as well in in what we were doing in there and so that really had an influence because you started wondering where that was happening and that my non-indigenous friends were going to the doctors my non-indigenous friends weren't getting these ailments my non-indigenous friends were not getting the Um, kind of health disparities that we're seeing. And as we get older, these health disparities went wider and wider and the opportunities started becoming less and less. And so that drove the inspiration to want to give back in health. And it wasn't, and I still attribute to this day to two amazing medical students who are now doctors, Dr. Lewis Peachy and Professor Sandra Eads, who are incredible um, medical students at the time. And the university had a Um, a local careers day just talking about doing different things. Prior to that, university wasn't even an option. Didn't even think about it, didn't even cross my mind, didn't even realise that was existent and possible for us, particularly when you're always told that you're not gonna succeed. Um, But having two um, young, um, bright Aboriginal role models changed that day and I still remember the day because my sisters and I came home and just sat on the bed and just chatting going, is this really an option? Is this real? How do these people do that? And it stimulated a kind of a, a thirst in our um, in our education to strive. And of course, with um, the experience that my mother and uh, my nan had, um, they were always pushing for education as an important pathway for us to get out of poverty. And so this was just that extra um, inspiration we needed. On the background of our role models were always sports heroes. We didn't have academic or professional heroes and suddenly you could see what you could be and something that we always talk about. And so very lucky and fortunate to be able to get into that space and and follow those dreams. And um, my sisters, and I feel a bit um, gammon, which is kind of fake in Aboriginal language, because I was extremely lucky with my nan, my mum, and my sisters being so bright in our matriarchal Mm -hmm. society we have that led the way. And I just followed my sisters, you know. I had the HSC notes. I had two tutors for me for when I struggled. with um, medicine, I went through and they uh, understand concepts. So I was extremely lucky. So for me to suddenly run away at the last minute and do surgery um, was my own gasp. but how do I show my own identity when I've been following these two amazing women for most of my life?
0: That's amazing. I really wanted to ask you about some of the influences that you had growing up um, so it's fascinating to hear about those couple of medical students you mentioned, as well as your, your sisters, your mum, your nan. And I've no doubt that now you yourself are perhaps playing that role for other people, that people, you know, um, might look up to you and say, Yeah, now it's possible. I can see Kelvin, he's a surgeon, and, and maybe I can make it to. Do you see that as kind of almost coming full circle now
1: that you provide that role model uh, capability? I think more than full circle, if I can be so bold to say, um, and thinking forward about, um, I have young children, and um, I'm going to give a talk to my son's school who's um, in kindergarten about uh, medicine and you know how do you actually, I'm so good at talking to a medical audience, but a five-year-old kindergarten group, I think, whoa. But one of the beautiful things which I realise is, The diversity of my friends who are surgeons is beautiful. And what I want to do without spoiling it for them, obviously they're going to be listening to this, is have a photo of all my friends and ask them what occupation they're doing. Now, of course, they're all going to be surgeons. But what I want to show the kids is that there is its diversity, that it's not this one picture that you see in the cartoon books that you have to be um, a certain demographic or a certain build or a certain person to be that and also in very engaging, friendly faces and and smiling. And so I I think that would be really nice to engage that talk about um, really striving to be whatever you wanna be. And don't mind if you don't wanna be a doctor, but just strive for whatever your interest is. And so to answer your question um, in how you perceive that, absolutely, I think it's very important that um, I represent and help and mentor um, those who are looking towards surgery. But what's exciting about that is that more so than being typecast as an Aboriginal surgeon, um, I'd like to think that I'm a friendly, helpful ENT surgeon, full stop. And that I happen to be a Warramai man is a bonus. And where I see that is that I'm mentor um, and I engage in conversations about career advice to all people, Um, women in surgery, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, uh, Maori, um, males, um, you know, a whole range. And to think, and it's incredible when you look at uh, people in your shoes, um, I look at the CVs that I'm mentoring I think, holy dooly, you know, how lucky am I to be a specialist now because I wouldn't get on with you competing with you guys, you're so talented. Um, but where that's nice is that people are coming to me who are being afforded amazing opportunities, these amazing CVs, and they're asking me as a Warramore man for advice on how to do surgery. You know, that's a a mind-blowing concept, but what's nice about that in, and now I have the confidence to say this, is that I can actually provide advice to them and I can actually help their careers, and I have helped a lot of my friends' careers in that. And so that's a really important point in society, in changing, because going back to my first story, is that this is an era where we were not allowed to swim in pools with our colleagues. They weren't allowed to go out after hours. And then suddenly, you know, if I look at my Nan, who's not with us anymore, she'd be seeing this she'd have a tear in her eye because we're changing that ethos and we're becoming what we should be, and it is humane.
0: I really like that, and I can definitely see what you mean by almost more than full circle. Um, I also wanted to attest to the fact that you mentioned friendly smiling faces and I've got your friendly smiling face in front of me at the moment that the listeners can't see. But, um, yeah, it's, it's really nice to um, be able to uh, look up to, to someone such as yourself and know that the many lessons that you've learnt can be passed on to, to the next generation. One other thing I wanted to ask you about your childhood was um, the concept of identity, which you mentioned um how important was that for you uh, as uh, an Aboriginal kid and also as an Australian kid in, in terms of your childhood and and growing up um,
1: in, in Australia? Um, very powerful. Um, as a Warrami man, it's really hard to um, conceptualise how embarrassing it was growing up and always being told to hide from your identity. And why I say that is that, um, when you're growing up in a in a society which perceives um, Aboriginal people in the light that we talked about, then of course the way you survive is to stay away from that so that you actually engage better. Um, the other complicating part of that is with the surname of Kong is my father's Chinese. And so um, having a Chinese background as well made it even harder because I represented what most young Australians hated at that time, or most Australians had at that time, and that is an Aboriginal as well as an Asian. And can very happily say that, and um, I think for me that was really hard to grapple with, so a lot of that was suppressed. Um, And again, if I can look to today, and I look at my son and my daughters, and how proud they are of their cultures, it's just one of the um, most rewarding things to me, that they can feel comfortable in their own skin, that they can talk about, their culture that they can embrace their culture is who we are so when i go back to my experience in that was really really tough times and i think that's part of that journey that we're going and maybe that was some of the drive i had in doing um, what i did but also some of the drive i had in being able to respond to the criticism that we had and i think for us in if i if i'm trying to talk to our, our listeners out there is that we have to be proud in our skin and we have to be um, strong in that because in the strength you have in yourself will make you a better doctor, will make you a better person, but most importantly will give you the best outcomes no matter what you decide to do in your medical career. And the reason for that is that it gives you a sense of pride, it gives you a sense of understanding, but most importantly it gives you a sense of empathy and being able to approach a patient in their shoes so they can actually walk that life and therefore you're gonna give the best treatment. And we know time and time again, that if you look after someone that's culturally similar to you, you'll automatically get a good response because there's better listening skills. Now, if you've embraced your own culture and there's someone else you're looking at in a different culture, then there are similarities that you can liken and go, I know how you felt with that. I know what that endured. And that can be a whole range of cultures. And I think one of the beautiful things about Australia is that we're this blending pot that continues to blend and as we're doing that, we're becoming more um, diverse. And the diversity has been represented in our medical schools and that's been replicated in our specialty boards and it's been replicated in our workforce. And that's a great thing for all of us. It's a great thing for our patients. and It's a great thing for our future.
0: Yeah, I really like that lesson of being strong in your own identity, no matter who you are or what that identity is. And especially that the, the end goal of that is going to be better patient care so i think that's a really great lesson for all of our listeners i want to return to talking about your role models you um, eventually um, kind of completed school and then um, went into medicine and you had those role models of not only the medical students you mentioned but also your twin sisters ahead of you What was the process of getting into medicine like and was it made a bit easier by having those ahead of you?
1: Oh much easier. Um and that's why I say I was a bit gam and a bit pretending on those fronts because having these and I still put my sisters on this pedestal because they were just incredible, um, super talented. Um my sister duxed her year of school and never got the ducks award because she was told that she'll get an Aboriginal award somewhere, so we're gonna give it to the next kid who was a non digits kid. And this is the stuff we are grappling with, even though they were just so amazing. Um, And I guess in some aspects, it gave us the fire and ability to continue that burn. Um, And so having those type of people around us um, really made it um, easy, in the sense of um, knowing what you're challenging for, but also put perspective on what the end goal was and constantly reminded of how we um, grew up experiencing what we grew up but then hearing the stories of how um, what my grandmother and my grandfather passed away when I was uh, early teenager and missing him a lot because he was always taking me fishing and doing a lot of things with me and then hearing all these stories after the fact um, make you realise that there is this real injustice even now you know I've got young children I don't have grandparents for my children to know it's all in story and song lines whereas a lot of my colleagues have and, and my wife's family have parents, so they've got grandparents on that side, and that's the reality of closing the gap. That um, we're not living to the age of seeing the fruits of the hard work of early, earlier life, and so it's really constantly trying to do that. Um, but it's also important to acknowledge that role models for me were um, um, non Indigenous as well, and so there are a lot of great surgeons, there's a lot of great academics, there's a lot of great um, teachers who inspired me to push forward with those as well. and. I think again to the listeners of the podcast is that you have to have multiple role models, you have to have multiple mentors, and you take what you need from your mentors that you can use and embrace, but also it's okay to leave things that you don't have similarities with, and that's really important because to this day, and I thought early on in my career, that these mentors would come and go in your life, but in reality, my mentors are with me forever, and my true mentors, I still keep in touch with, I still get advice from, I still leverage off and I still enjoy their company um, in in many facets. And I think that's really important because that's expanding our networking and expanding our reality of um, being a connected world and medicine more so than any.
0: Yeah, that's a great lesson about mentors. You also mentioned closing the gap, which I do want to talk about a little bit later. But firstly, I'd like to hear about what you were like as a medical student.
1: What were you interested in? I don't know whether I should put this on record. Um, But I was a a typical medical student. We had lots of fun. Um, I played a lot of rugby. I actually wanted to pursue a a more serious rugby career. Um, And again, if I can digress in the story is that when I thought about doing that, my Nan pulled me aside and said, what are you gonna do that for? Um, Footballers get 15 minutes of fame. Um, you know, you're going to change and do things a lot differently and make a real impact on um, our people's world if you get through medicine. So you're giving up football. Now, those who have strong grandmothers know that what they say happens, whether you like it or not. And the reason it sticks in my mind so much is that I cried. I was really upset that she said that because I... and I say this laughingly now because I thought I was a half decent footballer but in reality I was probably you know pretty average um and maybe she saw that side of it but the fact she had that wisdom on her oppression and this is a, a lady who was illiterate who never had the opportunity to school pushing education so hard in me because she missed out on that opportunity um and in retrospect the realization of me concentrating on medicine to get through made a huge difference and um, and the impact and certainly the desired outcome that she had is now realised in many of those things. Um, but uni life was uni life, you know, we had lots of fun, um, there was lots of camaraderie and one of the beautiful things about medicine, certainly in my university, was um, this diversity part that when I grew up in Newcastle in my country, we didn't have as, uh, a, as big a uh, diverse community and so coming to university where there's this huge diversity was a real shock to me. And suddenly there was a lot of people that I could relate to, just on the experiences we're having growing up in Australia, in a society that at that time was probably a little bit more prejudiced than what we're experiencing now.
0: No regrets going into ENT
1: surgery over football? No, no way. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not When my, my good friends I still keep in touch with, i played football with, and the amount of re- um, knee, shoulder replacements, and even just a career, you know, when they finished their career, um, it's harder and um, what you don't realise is that their football careers um, are very short and so suddenly you're hitting late 20s, 30s and you've got to start thinking about what you're doing and you've been playing football all your life. It's a really tough slog for them and I certainly appreciate the trouble they have uh, life after football so um, no way but you know I have the best job in the world, I come to work. I get in pyjamas, I listen to music, and I help people. Can you get any better than that?
0: That's a pretty good description of (laughs) surgery. I love it. What about um, within medicine but outside the core curriculum? Did you seek out any kind of extra activities or electives or anything like that?
1: Um, I was always proactive in in trying to seek community um, work. Um, Obviously, when I was going through university as well, I didn't have access to funds. So um, I was working most um, weekends. Um, when I wasn't playing football, when I gave up football I was working more to help with rent and cost of living. but also have an evening you know'd be t- helping tutor other students or high school kids or picking up cafe jobs or those kind of things. So a lot of my spare time was taken up trying to m- make ends meet. Um, and then outside of that obviously just meeting people and socializing from that perspective was always nice. What did you do
0: for jobs? Did you have a kind of a myriad different... Cafes, yeah.
1: pouring coffees, yeah. pouring beers, um, cleaning and tutoring was a really good job too because um, I enjoyed tutoring because you could help people but the, the hours are a lot easier and you could move them around a fair bit and meet some really fun people. So that aspect of it was good.
0: Having the ability to make a coffee is probably pretty useful as a surgeon. All the surgeons love coffees, aren't
1: they? I'm not making coffees <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> They're all scarred memories for me. Um, but, yeah, as a consequence maybe is that, um, and that's why I love coming to Melbourne, is the coffee is just, uh, you know, so enjoyable. Um, and I've become a really bad coffee snob, which I detest myself on because, um, you know, I go on holidays and most recently, last year when COVID was happening, I couldn't get a coffee. I was starting to get headaches. Probably shows you how much I'm addicted to caffeine, <laughs> but...
0: Oh, well, it's good to have you here as an honorary (laughs) Melburnian, an honorary coffee snob. So you graduated Kelvin in 1999 and went down to intern in Sydney at St. Vincent's. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that was like and
1: your experience as a junior doc. Yeah, wonderful. So uni, my intern year was 99. It was a fun year Um, and it was enjoyable for um, being able to work, having and I say this with a hand on my heart, having the privilege to pay tax. Um, And obviously when you are going to university and trying to make ends meet, um, students are all on the same boat that we look for a free feed and a free coffee. And to be able to ring up a friend and go, let's go to the movies, I'll shout you, was a real novel concept for someone who's grown up in such poverty. Um, To know that you could pay rent without scrounging around To know that you can even get a place probably just with yourself and your partner was a novel concept um, to do that. And so the working life and for your intern years for those listening is the only time that you'll be equal with every other person um, that you've graduated with. Because once you finish internship, everyone's life takes a different course on family, on careers, on research, on... um, And so internships are really uh, a great bonding year for, for friends so embrace that time as much as you can. Um, and so that was good. In terms of how that work was, the work was fantastic. St Vincent's Hospital is a, a, a special institution for me in Sydney um, that um, really looked after me, and protected me, but also um, revered and, and were very proud of me, like uh, an extension of my, my community and what we're doing. Um, patient stories are always wonderful and we hear. My, my first patient I had, sorry, one of my first Aboriginal patients I had was an elder from um, Redfern, which is not too far from um, the hospital, and I picked it up, and I was so excited that you know as it finally finishing, I was going to get a Aboriginal patient look after. Everyone knows when you're emergency, is. it's a very quick, hard, and fast area, and we stayed there chatting for um, 45 minutes, half hour, just taking a history and doing an examination. It was really, really nice and endearing for me, and then after examination, she just started crying and was really, really upset and I thought, what have I done? My name's gonna kill me. I've worked all this time. I spent so much time with her. I'm gonna be in trouble from the boss in emergency because I took so long with the history and examination. And I'm in trouble from this lady. I don't know what to do and how do I reconcile that? And when she calmed down and was chatting to me, she just said the most beautiful thing, and that was she never thought she'd lived the day to have an Aboriginal doctor look after her in her own country, and it touched her heart. And what was really nice about that is that she didn't know who I was, she didn't know my family. This was not about a egotistical thing about me and who I've just become a doctor. It was purely about the professional barriers have been broken and this through her eyes was a breakthrough. Now, if I likened her to my Nan, you know, this is a lady who's probably endured atrocities in her own country where she wasn't recognized as a citizen who would have endeared and, and endured a whole lot of things that we wouldn't even fathom, to have so much joy in her eyes that she was just so proud that we're going to get there. And the follow-on from that was, you know, if you're through now, imagine what's going to happen in the next five, ten years. And it just brought so much joy to me. And it made me realise in that conversation, if I look back to my nan making me give up football, is that this is far bigger than my family. This is far bigger than me this is about Australian society changing. And I think that was a really exciting part about that.
0: Yeah, that's a really special story. In terms of uh, the um, desire to go into surgery and eventually ENT, where did that come from and and how um, did you go about getting into that uh, during your years as a junior doctor?
1: I was very lucky in my early years of medical school, I met um, a surgeon by the name of Peter Carter who was an ENT surgeon and was just incredible, and to this day is still um, someone I admire a lot. He did a lot of outreach work, he did a lot of paediatric surgery, paediatric airway work, which is fascinating, and also some otology work um, around ear disease. And it fascinated me because um, he had the balance in life that I thought was just spot on. Um, There was operating, there was outreach, there was community work, there was public health, And there was some really cool operating in there as well. And I just fell in love with that kind of, um, um, I guess, perception that he had of life, but also the reality of being able to contribute and make a difference. I did not want to be someone who's just going to go to work and operate and that's it. I want to make a difference as well so that the the injustice and the slog that my um, family have had is actually rewarded by the difference that we can make and contribute back to the fabric of our society. And that really made a big impression on me. And so I was very lucky then because when I followed that pursuit, um, there were incredible doctors I met, Paul Fagan being another one, and you know, there's a whole lot of other people that I probably should mention but I won't in case I miss a lot of names, but um, that were very influential, very supportive and um, extremely um, nurturing in developing my career. Um, I often found that I found things I didn't like before I found things I liked. And yeah, you know, I, you know, I say this with a hand of my heart because I have the best psychiatry friends in the world, so apologies to my psychiatry um, aspirators. Um, but you know, when we did a uh, psychiatry ward round and they said, come into this room, and everyone took a seat, and one by one each patient came in and the ward round went for eight hours, I thought, I'm not going to be doing this in my career. But that doesn't mean it's not for everyone, you know, it was a a very uh, funny aspect. So you quickly find out the things you don't enjoy, but also I think when you find something you have, um, you'll enjoy that and make it work well. And again, if I have some advice for our listeners out there, the important part of that is that medicine takes a lot out of you. Medicine is a a very hard, um, it's very time consuming and it's very, it makes you very time poor and it saps a lot of your energy. And so whatever you find in medicine, you have to love. And the fact that I am very lucky that i found passion in the work I do, I don't think I've done a day of work since I've finished ENT surgery. Um, my wife thinks I'm mad because I get up in the morning when there's a great case on, you know, early getting excited going, i oh, this great case today. Um, I love going on outreach because I'm going to meet some fantastic kids. Um, I don't mind staying back and seeing some unusual things because it's just incredible. And because you have that uh, that passion and that energy in there, then it doesn't become something that's um, monotonous. It doesn't become something that's um, um, necessarily um, difficult. But more importantly, people around you and um, your patients, your friends, your colleagues, and most importantly, your family, will be able to get that energy to realise that this is something you love because if you're doing those kind of things and, and don't have that, you'll very quickly burn out and not look after yourself. Um, but the fine print of that is you must, must, must schedule out family time because that's the soul of my, um, of my of my world and also the drive behind why I'm doing all these things. And so if I'm just working all the time and not spending time with them, then I'm actually defying my whole goal.
0: That's great advice. Um, thank you, Kelvin. I'm interested to hear what it was about ENT specifically that attracted you. Was it the, the patients, the anatomy, the outreach? What do you think it was?
1: Oh, all the above. Um, the the ear is by far the most fascinating organ that we have. Um, to think that this, um, this combination of a very delicate, thin, tympanic membrane or eardrum um, can stimulate um, some small ossicles that can move um, endorph- lymphatic fluid to move cochlear hair cells to make you hear. It's just incredible. The fact your voice that we're talking here, that you can get a phone call from your um, mother, father, friend without even looking at them on the phone, you know who it is. Because your ears can pick that up, but also that their voice resonates in a way that you know what it is. Um, the these, the smell you have, the taste you have, this is all T, you know, we're the most important part for sure. Um, so, that um, being said, you know, there's a, there's an interest in there because it's so fascinating in what it does. The operating's quite delicate, um, the operating's fascinating, and you can make a real difference in, in what you're doing there. Um, but I think all of those combined, and the beauty of that is that it's just a beautiful structure, but I think part of that is also underpinned by the burden of disease that we have in our communities, and ear disease in the Aboriginal community is um, the worst in the world in many aspects, and as such it's a blight on um, education, it's a blight on employment, and it's a blight on our people. Um, when we have that dichotomy in Australia where e disease in Aboriginal people is so much poorer than our non indigenous counterparts, when we're in the same um, state, when we're in the same jurisdictions, is a travesty to our healthcare delivery. And I think that's something that we should be really highlighting.
0: Yeah, well, you've touched on something that I wanted to ask about next, which was your particular work in ear disease and and particularly in Aboriginal people. You are a really strong advocate for improving outcomes in otitis media, in, in particular, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that problem and why it causes so many issues, particularly in kids?
1: Yeah, so... That's what the kids hear. You fell for it.
0: Ah, I did. I love it, I love it.
1: (laughs) And the problem with it is, is that otitis media in our populations occurs at a much earlier age. All kids get otitis media in some form normally said around the daycare age where they start getting some infections. In our Aboriginal populations it's occurring under the age of 12 months. Now those who have kids or those who have been around kids know that in the first 12 months of life we're smiling, we're singing songs, we're playing with them, we're going and garring, go and we're all excited about it. These are kids that live in this world. No sound. So their language falls behind. Their enjoyment falls behind. Importantly, culturally for us, um, we have a very oral history, so the song lines are very important. Song and dance are very important. They can hear loud claps and bangs, but that's pretty much it. And so when you start getting to 18 months, two years, they're not walking, they're not talking, um, they're already falling behind. And the travesty of that is that by the time they get to um, preschool, kindergarten, they're already two years behind in language development and this sets them up for life. And so we talk about a lot of the programs that I've been involved in and certainly a lot of programs the government promote is that from conception through to the first three years of life are probably the most important in a child's development. And so we need to maximise everything in that early stage to make sure they get an early stage in life. If you don't, you miss out on education, you miss out on social interaction, you miss out on social harmony you miss out on employment opportunities, and, you know, the list goes on. How is that represented in the real world? You look at the incarceration rates of our mob, and minus the injustices that occur, a lot of these come back from the early start in life of being disengaged, of being thrown out the back of the classroom or thrown out of the classroom for not listening, when in actual fact we should have said, hang on, something's not right here, bring up the front of the classroom, get it checked out. But does this happen absolutely i work in a whole diverse range of populations and in my non-indigenous private health fund um, families when this occur problem occurs the teacher says please go see a doctor go see an NT, you need to get sorted out and the most beautiful things about when you hear suddenly is it makes a difference and parents come back and go you've changed our lives our kids listening they're talking they're happy they're joyful so they move back in society and therefore they move into that normal pathway that we created. Now, our Indigenous kids are not getting that same access. There's a real port of access to care, so therefore they're going from two to three, not starting school, maybe held back from kindergarten, start getting in trouble in kindergarten, lose interest in that, not get to education, get thrown in a classroom, think they're bad, and then you start looking at all the, um, the social harmony issues that we talk about. In our uh, prison populations, in the adolescent jails in Northern Territory until recently, every child was Aboriginal. Every child. Of those children, more than 85% had hearing loss. In our general populations, in our adult prisons, 3% of our population is represented by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, yet we represented about 30 to 35% of our prison populations. Again, many of them have hearing loss issues. Now, I'm not saying hearing loss is the be-all and all that, but if I go back to um, a sliding doors moment and I got that one-year-old kid and I said, you've got ear troubles and i fix that, I can almost guarantee it's going to change their life. And I see that all the time with a whole lot of kids I look after. And so as a concerned citizen, um, I think it's important for us to realise that we need to give every child in this country equal opportunity, equal parity to be able to live their dreams. And the important part of that is their early start to life. So if they've got hearing loss, then we need to correct that straight away. Now it doesn't necessarily mean an operation, it means we need to link them to hearing aids, cochlear implantation we have in this country now, um, and that we have the access that we can do that. The second thing that people always say to me is that, well, this is just remote communities, it's hard to get access to there. I'm not talking about remote communities in this conversation, this is our urban population. You time that by 10 when you go to some of the remote populations and then you realise how tragic it is when what I've talked about is that urban populations and then you've got to magnify that again because of the difficult access issues. So if if there's any message to go home, every ear, every opportunity, every kid. And I just want to hone that in no matter what kind of medicine you do. Always think about the ears because it's quite important for us.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. I kind of never appreciated the major flow-on effects that uh, what seems like not a massive issue um, at such a young age can have on really someone's entire
1: life. And you don't need to ask any parent whose kids had some hearing loss and what difference it's made. You know, it's a, a huge difference. And I think for us, some of the fun stuff with that is the difference it makes um, in what their hearing trail I say, you know, some of the great stories I get, I had a kid who started swearing after their operation mm. because their next-door neighbour ran a men's shed. I was always swearing and they could never hear the words before. And so the kids come in swearing and the parents go, oh, you know, this kid starts swearing now and it's, it's humorous. Or another kid I did and they didn't realise that farts make noises. And so they just thought they vibrated and stunk. And then suddenly came back and told me, Dr. Kong, did you know my fart makes noises? You know, that, that kind of stuff is humorous, but you realise what they're missing out on and that. And I go back to early SAGM, the biggest part of learning at that zero to three is play interaction, which involves hearing and sight, and so these things just have to be um, better down to make sure they're perfect.
0: I'd like to kind of extend that chat now to the entire Indigenous health gap that we spoke about before. We often hear about closing the gap, um, but then you know the statistics are often come out coming out that. Um, the gap in life expectancy for example between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians is still as big as it's ever been are the right moves being made in that direction are we having the right conversation about closing the gap
1: if I answer that question by changing the question and that is the conversations in the wrong frame so closing the gap means that we're going to try and get there but you know what stay where you belong so shouldn't the answer be, or the question be, shouldn't we eliminate the gap so that every person in this country has equal opportunity and it should be exactly the same? Why are we just trying to close it? The second part of that is that the divergence that's occurring at the same time is that as we're trying to strive to improve equity in this nation, um, the non-indigenous and general population is just skyrocketing in the health advancements so that our, our longevity is improving, um, our life expenses out of this world, our cancer right survivals are improving um, and on the OECD nations, we're number two or three in our health outcomes. And so as that's improving, we might be making small gains in health but it's actually getting bigger because we're doing so much more in this space but we're still leaving behind our First Nations mob, um, whether that be Australia um, or New Zealand, ATURA. And so... The conversation needs to be around why is this happening and how is it when we are such an advanced nation that we're still getting this? So if you look at my own sphere, um, you look at um, the advance of cochlear implants being fantastic, but most cochlear implants don't even get considered in our Aboriginal kids because it's an access issue. If you look at operating for our children, and MBS data alone. So this is just on MBS data, which is a really nice um, uh, way of looking at variations in surgical access. Now it would be of little surprise to most listeners that if you live in the right postcode, you're gonna get the right operation you need. If you don't live in the right postcode, then you're not gonna get the access to theater cases and not get the access to health outcomes you need. And so this is not even saying that someone's overtly racist or biased, But in our natural way in which we're delivering healthcare, it is exponentially demonstrating how bad that difference is. And so we need to go back a step and look at um, what are those um, uh, modifiable factors which are holding back our engagement. We bear to the social determinants of health, which is a big part of that. But I think as healthcare professionals, we need to be stronger at advocacy in this area, but also how we're we practicing medicine that makes it so different. What am I doing in my practice to help that? And what's hard is that it's not necessarily at an individual level, but that's where we need to be working, it's on the global level. So, you know, one of my great friends and colleagues here, Professor Stephen O'Leary, um, works at the Royal Um Ear Hospital and does amazing work. One of the things he impresses on is he goes down the Varcho and does a a clinic at Fitzroy Clinic, even though it's, what, less than 5K from each other, because we know that if you go to a clinic in an Aboriginal culturally safe environment, your attendance improves, your outcomes improve, your access to theatre improves, and he's doing nothing except moving him away from the hospital to a different environment. So how do we look at those different concepts? And this is a very, very basic model of um, how we can improve healthcare delivery. And this applies to all of our vulnerable populations, our refugee population, our low SES population. And I think that's the mindset we need to get into to actually make a real difference. You're not gonna make a difference just by throwing money at an an issue that you're not actually solving the, the crux of the problem. The crux of the problem is coming back to societal um, beliefs and also access to healthcare services in an appropriate manner. So is
0: that access you're talking about, is that culturally specific healthcare? Is that that something that we're trying to achieve as a profession?
1: Um, I think it's a thing called common sense. And so if, and, and I always talk about the difference between equality and equity in that concept. So if you want to be equal, then we are equal. We've got a beautiful hospital here, right? we're at St Vincent's Hospital, and it's an amazing hospital, and it's, you know what, it's open to everyone. That's equality. Now equity is, why is it that not everyone gets the access to this hospital that they need? And so how does that change, and what should we be doing to make sure that the populations that need the care get the care, if you look at it from emergency principle, if you go into the emergency department of this hospital here, we have a triage system of heart attacks, car crashes, um, uh, sore finger, uh, tinea. And so straight away you can classify those and work out what's priority, what needs to be seen. And so why can't we do that in a cultural lens when we look at these things so that, you know, sometimes a kid who is a quarry kid here with hearing loss who is three, should be prioritised to say if we don't fix this these are the health consequences, these are long-term devastations we need to get on it and fix that now and make it a priority. Versus a three-year-old non-indigenous kid who might have a ear problem but you know they're going to bounce around, get a bit of antibiotics and do okay and not actually have a long-term outcome. So it's then teasing out all those issues around equitable access which is very different to equality because we want equity needs kids to make sure that they're both coming out so that when you've got Um, child A and child B, the hearing outcomes, language outcomes, schooling outcomes, employment outcomes are exactly the same. And that goes back to we're a first world nation, we're smart about that. We don't say if you've had a heart attack versus a sore finger or a gout that you're not going to say, well, actually, let's get the gout through first because you know they're going to get poor outcomes of the heart attack. Yet we have common sense around that, but we don't have common sense around the cultural lens that we need to put to make sure that people get the treatment they need.
0: I really like that difference between equality and equity. I'm kind of imagining. I'm not sure if you've seen the cartoon of people looking over the fence to the to the football match, mm-hmm. um, and that's kind of what I'm imagining you're describing there. Mm. Yeah. You've mentioned some of the kind of um, maybe system or organisational level changes that that need to occur. Um, you know, referring to common sense. What can maybe we do as medical students, junior doctors, or people who are going to shape the future of um, the, the healthcare industry to ensure that um, you know the, the hospitals, the emergency departments, the clinics uh, for the next generation are um, much more appropriate and equitable to, to everyone that they serve.
1: The good news is, is I don't think it's your responsibility in some aspects, and I'll come to that in a second. At an individual level, I think it's very important to look at the way in which you behave and the way in which you are going about your business and also when you're seeing patients to move away from your implicit bias and certainly be aware of your unconscious bias that you may have. And that's really important because that means that you're treating a patient as a human being. And sometimes when you see someone who's homeless on the street who comes to you for an ailment um, that they've probably lived an incredible life and you get some really wonderful stories out from them which is quite um, quite cute in that then as part of that you need to call out the behaviours of your colleagues that if someone is um, um, behaving, if someone calls it, or if someone says something like that then you need to be able to in a very, respect, very respectful manner be able to say oh you know what maybe a bit harsh that. should you think about it in a different way and ask some questions how did you come to that decision on on making that assumption so uh if you had an Aboriginal patient and then they're blaming alcohol because they're falling over um how did you come to that answer when you haven't actually asked them where they've been drinking you know subtle things like that really point out your natural bias in doing that so they're kind of individual things i think where we've done really well with the medical schools is that there is so much more um first nation content that there is context to understanding that but when you come to the pragmatic um, realisation of how that works in the workplace, it's harder because you've, you're time poor, you're fast, you've got to move quick, and these things you still need to keep in mind. From a future direction and, and also from a planning point of view, it is really important for us to speak up on behalf of those who don't have the opportunities that we have, and that's where the colleges are doing really well, and also the hospitals and through the state governments are actually doing a lot of work around here to try and improve that. So for us in the colleges um our selection process and particularly for those aspiring surgeons listening is around how do we value someone who's actually going to put more effort into making sure we're culturally aware and safe how do we put more value in someone who's going to do more work around this kind of an area in real terms and how do we measure that as opposed to someone who's going to set up in um, a cosmetic studio and no disrespect to any cosmetic surgeons out there at all. But it's really about valuing what we think are important in bringing through, so if there's uh, 100 applications for an E T training program, in the past, that selection process would be if you knew blah blah and blah blah is your father, then you get on the training program. Which then moved more towards um, CV um, building and also access to point scoring. Now the problem with that is that it's a game process and so therefore if you have the resources behind you, you can get your masters, you can get your PhD, you can get your research and you'll start getting the points and therefore you'll have a better successful chance than um, those who are poorer or don't have that kind of access to those things. So then at a college level we're working out, well how do we actually make that a more fairer playing field? How do you? How do we value the qualities that you bring? And I know that if I got X on instead of Y on, that they're going to do a much better job at treating the community. And I go back to my own philosophy, and that is that we want people involved who are going to contribute and make the fabric of Australian society better and stronger. And so those things are starting to be worked out. And when you start doing that, you'll start seeing that the face of the colleges and the cultural changes happening in the colleges now is incredible. And we're seeing that diversity, we're seeing that engagement, we're seeing the programs that have been developed out, we're seeing all of these things because this is a a college initiative but also a journey that everyone wants to be on and the fact that you're even bothered to ask me to do this podcast is a reflection of how our society norms are changing to be more engaged in this step and i think that's the exciting part that we're looking at
0: you mentioned the the colleges and the, the roles that they're playing um, of course I alluded at the start but haven't come back to the fact that of course you're a member of the Royal College of Surgeons and in fact you're the first Aboriginal surgeon having been awarded your FRACS in 2007. I want to say congratulations although it must have been a, a bit of a hollow feeling
1: knowing that it took that long. It's, it's interesting because first I want to acknowledge the Nunkerys and nunkries so are traditional healers in our country and Nunkerys have been around for thousands of years and so in the old days, a lot of the nuncaries were actually procedures as well. And so they were our true first surgeons. So in a Western sense, absolutely. Um, the second bit is that there was a lot of fanfare around when I graduated and it was embarrassing because I didn't ask for the limelight, but it was also um, a lot of pressure because as an intern, you can imagine if when you're an intern, you're getting all these um, media and um, attention toward you. When you don't know where you're gonna be, you don't want to be um, paraded around and you certainly don't want to um, diminish your chances by um, having, you know, we, we have this uh, ability in Australia to have a tall poppy syndrome where we get chopped down very quickly when you're doing that. So you didn't want that perception. So I was very hard from that. But the, probably the biggest issue is that when you look at the history of uh, doctors um, and specialists in our nations across the world, The fact that it was 2007 for the first surgeon is embarrassing. Um, You know, um, New Zealand had their first doctor in the 1800s. Um, We had our first female doctor in the 1800s. Um, And when you look at all the first uh, in, in in Northern America, in Canada, they're all 1800s, early 1900s. And then suddenly you get this colour picture away from the black and white pictures of, you know, the first doctors in our country, whether it be psychiatrists, ophthalmologists, dermatologists, um, they're only just happening now. And I think the frame of the question or the narrative should be, where is everyone else? Why is this the first rather than, wow, we've got the first, let's celebrate this. And it's a catcher in you because of course the family and my community is so proud and so happy. Um, but I think that's a testament to their support to me and how lucky I've been in their support across my whole career. So any success I have is their success, not mine. But then the bigger picture then is, then, well, why are we so far behind and how do we actually rectify that difference that's occurred?
0: And are moves being made towards that? So since 2007, for example, um, you know, have there been other um, Aboriginal surgeons following in your footsteps?
1: I'd like to say there's like hundreds that are following my footsteps, but there are three in total now. Um, but there are uh, approximately um, six Um, trainees and there's approximately 12 to 14 that are really keen to get on surgery so there is a pipeline happening and part of that pipeline is how do we um, encourage and make sure that they're um, able to do it but also are successful Um, and that's again been a really exciting journey because there are two ends of that there's the one end of how do we prep them up for the application process which all you guys are going to go through and it's that's an interesting thing, and again, I advice on these, all these pearls, is that there's a way to apply, and there's a way to apply. And everyone knows what I mean by that, because if you look up on the website, it says do X, Y, Z. But in reality, what you need to do, talk to your registrar, talk to the bosses, meet some people, find out what you need to do, and that's reality of applying. The second part, then, is then the other end of, this, uh, of the selection process, and is how to wear a college try and value some of the important non-technical um skills that um people bring to the college and that's what we're looking at in in that aspect
0: kelvin it's been a great chat we've spoken about so many of the things you do in, in surgery public health advocacy what do you do in all your spare time
1: um i have three beautiful young children and a gorgeous wife and so a lot of my spare time these days is um spending the time with them and i must say that in the covid period my family have Absolutely loved it because I've hardly travelled at all and um, it brings a smile on my face every day just hanging out with my kids and, and running amok with them. We have a disco every Friday night, we make pancakes every Saturday morning um, and uh, just enjoying their company and, and being with my wider um, family is just so, so important to me so I'm really enjoying that.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear and as you say um, for the aspiring surgeons, something that um, you have to work at and you know you said you mentioned scheduling time in and and yeah making sure that's a priority in your life family or or whatever it may be that interests you outside of surgery
1: and there's no rush to that as well is probably the thing i didn't say is that we're so fixated on intern residency pushing through there is no time limit meander go and go and travel go and enjoy life because work will always be there and when you find that passion you're going to do it irrespective
0: Kelvin, I've certainly taken a lot from your story. Um, I'm sure our listeners, the medical students, doctors, and and anyone else who might be listening will have as well. Uh, I feel like you've given so many pearls, but I'm going to ask you for one more. What's the one piece of advice that that maybe you learnt in your journey or or was given to you in your journey that you can pass on to our listeners today?
1: I have two pieces of advice and one practical. I probably won't even go on the pad. I'll give two pieces of advice and that is uh, be kind and be useful. Um, In medicine, it's a very um, uh, harsh environment and we have to look after each other. We are a beautiful family and when you are frustrated, when you're time poor, when you are sleep deprived, you need to be able to um, treat people with respect. And whether you're an intern looking after a patient, whether you're a resident looking after an intern, whether you're a registrar looking after your boss or vice versa, um, it's always nice to be polite and courteous because that goes a long way in caring for each other. Um, And be useful. Um, if, If you're not actually doing something that's going to make a better outcome for your patient, then think twice about what you're doing. Are you just doing this as a distractor? Are you doing this just to turf the patient to someone else? Um, and if you find yourself useful and kind, you'll go a long way in medicine.
0: That's a great note to finish on. Be kind and be useful. Um, I'll definitely take that with me. I'm sure many of our listeners will as well. Thanks so much for your time today, Kelvin. It's been great to chat and all the best in the future.
1: Thank you so much.
0: This episode of The Timeout was brought to you by Aidan Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. Don't forget to subscribe to The Time Out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and let us know on Facebook or Twitter if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show at TTO Podcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.